0: Can you guys hear me? Oh, yes, you can. Okay, sorry. Um, It is truly my honor today to start off the group of senior residents who will be presenting grand rounds over the next couple of months. So Josiah leads the pack and is going to start today. Um, Josiah comes to us um, from Weill Cornell Medical College, where he uh, went to high school in Qatar. He's a German native, but went to high school uh, where he met his beautiful wife. I just learned today that his tie is from their prom, which is pretty exciting. Um, It is no surprise to us that in medical school he did a lot of work, uh, culminating in the Humanism Award um, that he received for a graduating senior from his medical school. While in residency, he's done a lot of work with critical care. He's worked on the Life Safety Program Landscape Project with Matt Braga and on the Infant Falls Quality Improvement Group with Dr. Allison Holmes. Um, We are excited that he is going to Baltimore next year to continue his critical care training. And with that, he's going to talk to us about positively shaping a family's journey to an inevitable negative outcome. Oh, by the way, H, C, V, as in Victor, D. Ready? H, C, V as in Victor, D as a dog. All right?
1: You're on. Get mic on? It yeah. should be on. It's <laughs> on. All right, can everyone hear me OK? Perfect. Good. Um, oh, you cannot? Can we turn it up? All right. How about now? Any better? No. I feel like Keith has something on
0: here. Yeah. No. Like no. That's a good... speech bubble.
1: All right, we're turning it up. Still turning it up. Anything? Better? So
2: wow. No. Wow. Well, that's too complicated. Chief resident.
1: <laughs> what? No, I hear you now. It's on, but I'm not going to present like that. Oh, clip it. I see. Not
0: to the other side.
1: Not to the other side. All right. Sorry, Rick has taught me one or two
0: things.
1: But it only works this direction. All right, how about now? Better? Okay. great. Okay, so I want to talk with all of you um, about the families of children who are dying um, and how we can best support them, and this is particularly in the ICU setting. Um, I have no conflicts of interest to disclose, Um, and before we start on that topic, this is my family. Um, Kate is my wife, she's a pediatric nurse up on the ward, and my almost four-month-old son, Daniel, who's also joining us. So if you hear cute or not so cute baby sounds, that would be him. (laughs) Um, Okay. So why are we talking about this? Um, People don't want to talk about children dying, um, particularly not at 8 AM in the morning. Um, But this is something that that we certainly experience. It's a hard and serious topic. um, But my aim is that by the end, uh, you will feel better equipped Um, to support these families um, through the darkest days of their lives. So how did I end up with this topic? I ended up with this topic after taking care of a four-year-old in the PICU um, just about a year ago whose story I'm going to tell through the course of this presentation. Um, The pictures included in this presentation of children and so on are not of the actual patient but are just randomly from the Internet to help um, tell the story. But the imaging studies I included are, in fact, of the actual patient. Um, So I took care of this four-year-old who had um, been admitted to the PICU, the pediatric ICU, with severe traumatic brain injury. Um, He was part of a family of four, um, lived with his parents and his two-year-old brother, um, and had been in the area because they were out of state um, for the holiday season. And on the drive back home on an icy road, um, their vehicle was struck uh, by a truck on the right side, um, which is exactly where this four-year-old was seated. Nobody else was injured, um, but the four-year-old dad recollects pulling him out of his car seat, and he was blue, unresponsive, but then did initially start, or did start breathing, um, and had obvious injuries, particularly to the right side of his head. Um, They obviously quickly called the emergency services who found him to have a pulse and be hemodynamically stable, um, but secured his airway and transported him to um, Dartmouth. In our trauma bay, um, imaging revealed that he had significant head injuries, um, swelling diffusely of his brain um, as well as several um, bleeds that on repeat imaging that we can see here were actually expanding and growing as well as multiple skull fractures. So swelling of the brain as well as expanding bleeds will increase the pressure in the brain because it's in a closed system, a closed box, and increased pressure in the brain will stop the blood flow to the brain and cause further damage. So we do not want increased intracranial pressures. So as part of that, neurosurgery placed a drain into the ventricles to both help drain some fluid to relieve pressure as well as to allow us to measure the pressures. And they also removed the right side of the skull um, to allow the system to be open and reduce the pressures. At this point, they brought him up to our pediatric ICU, um, where the rest of the family was able to join. Initially, it was just dad um, that had been there with him. So we now went over with the family what the severe traumatic brain injury looked like, what is the expected course, because it does have a typical course that it follows. where you have the initial injury and then the brain sort of swells um, as a response to that injury with the peak swelling occurring anywhere from two to five days and then that improves. In that time we need to monitor the pressure and if it is high treat it because of what we talked about how it can cause additional damage. In order to treat it there's various there's sort of a stepwise approach that we can take to it um, and first uh, this is from the updated guidelines on treating se- severe traumatic brain injury. Um, and first is to drain the CSF, which our neurosurgeons had already done um, with the drain they placed. Um, we can give the patients doses of hypertonic saline. Oop, it froze. There we go. Um, which basically draws fluid off of the brain. We can sedate them, control their pain to sort of reduce the oxygen demand of the body as well as the brain themselves or itself. Um, we can paralyze them. With a neuromuscular blockade similarly to reduce the oxygen demand of of the body and finally we can give more hypertonic saline um, or some other medications that do the same thing and these are really the first level first tier therapies that we have for it and if pressures are still high after working your way through this you move on to the second tier therapies of which the main one although there are others um, but the main one that we're just going to talk about is um, the barbiturate infusion which is a medication that essentially will induce a coma in the the patient to sort of ultimately reduce brain activity. So, after the swelling finally is down, only then can we really assess the true extent of the damage that has occurred to the brain, both primarily through the neurologic exam and what the patient is able to do once we allow them to wake up, but also through additional imaging, particularly MRIs. Where that leaves us now with our patient, for the next several days to a week plus is a period of waiting, which we presented as a cautiously hopeful time. Because kids generally, particularly compared to adults, have much better um, possibilities of recovery neurologically after these injuries, even if they can look pretty devastating. So one thing that was tricky with him was that we were not sure how much of these injuries were due to the actual impact versus how much of them were due to hypoxia or low oxygen, um, because he had been found blue. Um, And the importance of that, particularly for prognosis, is that the damage induced by low oxygen is much, much less recoverable from, if that makes sense. Um, But we didn't know at this time. So As expected, his intracranial pressures began to climb by around day three, and we quickly worked our way through um, that algorithm we just went through. By day six, we had worked our way all the way through the first tier medications and treatments, and his pressures, pressures continued to climb, so we did induce a coma, which helped initially, but even despite that, Um, his pressures continued to climb, and we had now, at this point, reached maximal medical therapy, and there was nothing else we could do other than give the medications as we could. But otherwise, we just sort of watched the pressures climb, um, because there was no more that we could uh, do. We all knew that this could not be good for a prognosis, but again, we were in this period of waiting and had to get over the initial swelling to find out more. We did get additional CT head to make sure that there was nothing, no new bleed, something we could intervene on. Um, And it looked a lot worse than we anticipated. It showed a lot more swelling than we had thought, so much so that his brain was sort of protruding out from the the hole that we had made in his skull. Um, And importantly, um, suggested that there were large areas um, of hypoxic damage. That was the damage we did not want to see, the one that is much, much less likely to recover. Neurosurgeons, the neurosurgeons did perform um, the same procedure they had done on the right side on the left side to remove the skull on the left side of the head just to do whatever we could to try and relieve the pressure since medically there was nothing more we could do. And this marked an important time, this imaging, um, in terms of a shift in prognosis. When we had initially been cautiously hopeful in talking with the family, this. Definitely changed how we had the conversations because we knew with this much damage and especially hypoxic damage the prognosis was much much poor um, The chance of recovery much smaller the demeanor changed um, of our team when we spoke with family um, And it really was a drastic sort of change in how we spoke with them so by day 11 Uh, the swelling finally was improving we were able to use less and less of the medications and the pressures would stay down without our intervention and this finally marked the end of our period of waiting parents were looking for any improvement right this is where we're looking for neurologic exam changes any sort of function that comes back Um, and while he did have movements What was hard to explain to parents was that the movements were not purposeful and all reflexive, so essentially movements that could occur without having an actual functional brain proper. He was triggering his own breaths on the vent, um, but his brain on the EEG that we had in place had virtually no activity. At this point, we had another, or we had a family meeting um, with the neurology team and the parents, as well as the PICU team, to convey this really change in prognostic picture that we were seeing based on his exam and the new imaging. This was the first time we started introducing this branch point of considering withdrawal of life-sustaining treatments versus giving him more time and looking for any sort of recovery that might happen, which would likely involve placing a trach, a G-tube, and so on. The additional thing that we did was obtain an MRI that we placed and especially the family placed a lot of value on because it could further give us more detail on the type and extent of the injury to his brain. And in a sense this MRI was actually pretty hard to interpret. Um, This is looking at the diffusion weighted imaging where sort of bright signal um, means uh, damage from hypoxia so the damage we do not want to see. And at first glance, it doesn't necessarily look that bad. The sort of outside part of the brain is normally lighter than the inside part, which is where we see, and there's certainly some areas, particularly on the right, where there is more brightness, um, but not as diffuse as the CT scan, at least on our first look. Um, and unfortunately, before the final read was out and before we had a time to all communicate and sit down with radiology and the other teams and sort of figure out the consensus of what this imaging showed, the message was conveyed to the family that, hey, this actually might not look as bad as the CT scan. But when the final read came out, um, it showed that there was, in fact, very little normal brain remaining at all. And that there was damage pretty much throughout the brain above the level of the brain stem, Which also means that what we need to compare the brain to, right, is normal brain tissue, which is the brain stem. And if you see there, the reason it was difficult to interpret at a first glance is that the whole brain basically was injured and abnormal. So there was very little normal brain to compare it to. But it is clearly diffusely brighter than the brain stem that we see in the middle there. So now we had to go back um, and tell the family that, no, actually, the final read was a lot worse after we spoke with neuroradiology. We spoke with um, the various different teams. And that left them incredibly distressed and frustrated because hope once given is very hard to take back Um, and communicating where that discrepancy in read had come from was difficult. The attending at this time um, in frustration with that situation and where we had left the family noted um, that one of the most important parts of our job in critical care is helping families through tragedy giving mixed messages like this is not fair. And that quote really stuck with me. I want to pause the story here. I was a second year resident at this time trying to figure out what to do with my life. Um, Was considering the ICU because I really enjoyed my, had enjoyed my time there in terms of the physiology, the problem solving, the technology you get to work with, the acuity, you can control the hemodynamics and play with vent settings and I found all of that very interesting. But what Dr. Fossil's comment, who was the attending at at the time, um, showed is that so much of what we do is far more than that, but is supporting the families um, through this time, as well as the patients, although often they are sedated um, and not conscious. How we handle these hard, painful situations is absolutely crucial and has a huge impact on how the family experiences these hard times. And when all our knowledge of physiology all of the technology cannot change this four year old's outcome. What Dr. Fussell knew was that the one thing we still had control over was how this family experienced his poor outcome. And this was something I really was drawn to and wanted to be involved in. And so it was this that really cemented in my mind that I wanted to go into critical care rather than the physiology and all of that stuff that initially had parked my interest. And it also spawned the question for this grand rounds. How can we optimize a family's journey through this hard time? Particularly in the ICU setting. Is there literature on this topic? What do families really need? So what I hope to do today um, is after sort of summarizing looking through the literature and summarizing that for you to give you an appreciation for the impact that we have on families and the impact or the lasting impact that has on them. I will then look through the literature to help us all understand how we can positively shape their journey through these hard times. I'm looking specifically at how we can do that through caring for the family, good communication, and optimizing the context of death and the time thereafter. Um, And finally go over an appreciation for any areas of uncertainty that, that remain in this field, of which there certainly are many. What was interesting was that the literature on this topic first exists, and secondly, was surprisingly consistent in much of what it showed that parents needed. In this uh, presentation, I looked at about 22 studies, um, 17 of which consisted of interviews or, and/or surveys or questionnaires that were given to families um, that had lost a child months to years earlier. Mostly single-center studies, though some multi-center. Most of the studies had 50 to 80 parents, although the full range was anywhere from 20 to 146. Um, And the results really were a summary of the interviews or questionnaires and the themes that came up from those. And the ones that did have surveys sometimes were able to quantify and give us some numbers in terms of the trends that they saw. There were four studies that were reviews, um, and one study that was a case report that also included a small literature review in it. Most of these span from the year 2000 to 2018 and come from both the medical as well as the nursing literature. Most of them are from the US, um, some from Canada, but there's also a few from Australia and, and Sweden. So the literature also supports this as an important area of study for two reasons. It has a lasting impact on our families that we're taking care of and there's room for us to improve in how we do this. The parents, how we interact with the parents has a lasting impact. Uh, Multiple studies mention how single hurtful comments during the end of life care um, haunted the families for years after. Um, One study noted that 70% of the parents experienced um, careless remarks that were made um, that caused, again, lasting pain for years to come. On the positive side, those that had Those physicians and nurses that provided good care for these families were remembered in very great detail and by name years and years after, and the family felt very close to them. Additionally, um, it has a significant impact on the parents' grief. So briefly looking at this specific study uh, from the year 2000 was looking at factors affecting grief intensity scores from a validated grief assessment tool and found that the factors associated with higher intensity grief scores were staff being perceived as uncaring, nervous, too busy to be bothered, and families feeling like they were not kept adequately informed about their child's condition. The study then performed uh, multiple or multiple regression analysis on the different factors that they saw to see how much of the variability in these scores could be explained by some of these factors um, and found that 42% of the variability in the long term grief scores was explained through the parents cognitive coping so their ability to hold a good self image after the loss as well as the staffs being or whether the staff was perceived as caring or uncaring and whether the family was adequately informed about the child's condition. We'll come back to this slide and the one prior um, in a little bit uh, later later in the talk. Almost all of these with the exception of the cognitive coping are in our control and have to do with how we interact with the family. We also can do better. Uh, Several studies looked at family satisfaction with care around the end of life. A study out of Boston found that 55% of parents felt that they had little or no control in the last days for the decisions that were made, and 24% would have made different decisions. A study out of Canada found that 80% of parents felt that communication was inadequate around this time. So this, this topic is important based on the literature showing the lasting impact as well as the fact that we have room to do this better based on what families need. So let's get into the details of how we can better support our families and we're going to start with how we can do that through caring for the family. So the literature uh, shows that how we support the family is largely in small practical ways. Nothing major or complicated often. Small acts of kindness were really appreciated. And nurses are much better at this than we are as physicians, with one study noting unanimously positive remarks about nursing care, with the physicians receiving some negative comments and room for improvement, so we can learn from our colleagues. I look at how we can care for the family by splitting the family into the parents, how we can care for the siblings as well as the patient. Let's start with the parents. These are the main people that we're supporting, and the ways that we support the siblings and the patients themselves also indirectly helps us support the parent. There are several things that we can do practically to support the parent, as well as to help them fulfill their role as parents. Um, That is very important to them. The practical things we can do are, again, come down to these acts of kindness. Hand them a tissue when they're crying, which seems like a silly, small thing, but is tremendously powerful and means a lot to them. Bring them a cup of water give them directions when they don't know how to get out of our twisty confusing unit modifications of the environment for their comfort uh, was very much appreciated as well make sure they have enough chairs in the room make it as quiet as possible which can be hard in the icu environment and allow them to make the room their own be flexible they appreciate it when we deviate slightly from our usual routine and so on to accommodate what what they need allow them to decorate the room Things like that. More importantly, probably even than these acts of kindness, however, is to allow them to fulfill their role as parents. Many parents noted feeling like they were not sure whether the child now belonged to the ICU or whether the child belonged to them. And the environment, as well as all the technology and tubes and lines, got in the way of their ability to care for their child. How can we fix that? We can allow them to be involved practically. Let them change the diaper. If their child is wearing a diaper, let them clean their child, dress their child, be involved in cares with nurses. Additionally, as parents, they need to be involved in the decision makers, or in the decisions, right? They're the decision makers for their child. And so it is important for them to remain in that role, especially now through this hard time. One study found that 20% of parents felt like they had little authority over end of life decisions. And that's seven out of the eight, so almost all of those in the 20% had wished they had had more authority during that time. So if we value the assessment of parents of how their child is doing, we're validating their expertise in their child as the expert on their child. We need to make sure that they remain informed about what is going on with their child, what the treatment options are, what the prognosis is, because how else are they otherwise going to be able to make decisions for their child? And finally, ultimately, to summarize that, they really mentioned that they wanted to be and feel supported as decision makers for their children, as well as us providing support after they had made the decision, um, telling them you're so brave for choosing to withdraw life-sustaining treatment or whatever the situation may be. What can we do for the siblings? Two of the studies spoke specifically about Caring better for the siblings with one study noting that 13% of patients or parents wished that the siblings had more time With the patient so allowing them the siblings access to the patient can be really powerful Obviously as that is realistic depending on how the child is doing Additionally again, it's the small acts of kindness Do we play with the child the siblings rather do we get to know them do we provide a playroom? In our case, child life was incredibly helpful for the two-year-old, both in terms of keeping him entertained but also providing information to the parents of how to talk about what is going on with his older brother to a two-year-old and giving him a story to tell. And finally, what can we do for the patient um, themselves? A big thing is talk to them. Treat them like a person, even though they're not doing much and intubated, not moving. Treat them like a person to counteract the parents' perception of that. Get to know them. Let parents hang up photos in the room that really helps make them a real person. Who are they? What did they like to do? And what what did others say of them? Interestingly, having those conversations, getting to know the patient, will then also be very helpful in facilitating, determining the parent's goals of care for this patient, based on the patient's values. And this is exactly where we moved to next with our four year old patient. Over the next three days after this MRI, we had numerous family meetings with the different subspecialty teams to discuss the parent's goals of care for their son in the light of this very likely poor prognosis. We presented again the poor prognosis as well as a range of outcomes, although the most likely one would be very, very minimal neurologic function. The parents were clear over those days that their goals were actually quite high in terms of how much function they wanted their son to have. They would like him to continue to have meaningful relationships, to be able to eat, walk, without assistance and otherwise would not be interested in prolonging suffering with life-sustaining treatments. So the decision to be made was whether we were at the point that the parents wanted to withdraw life-sustaining treatment or give him more time and look for any possible recovery because maybe we just needed more time. And they really wanted more information on the prognosis, right? Because that is what's going to help them make that decision. If there's a chance for recovery, then sure, we will give them more time. And really wanted more literature on this topic, which is really hard to find given all of the many, many factors, right? Is it damage from hypoxia? Is it damage from the, the injury or the impact itself? Is really hard to find. And the team did a lot of work to look for that literature and what was available. <clears throat> they did find Uh, The literature that we did find overwhelmingly supported a very, very poor prognosis, although there were a few small percentages of children that did show some recovery. And based on even that small percentage, the conclusion the family came to was that they wanted more time. They wanted second opinions, largely, again, probably because of the roller coaster ride we put them through with our confusion about the MRI imaging initially, and wanted Boston Children's to review the images and had also a... family connection in Florida in the critical care unit there to review the case. And in the meantime, assume we were going to work towards rehab, trach, and G-tube placement. These meetings illustrate what we can do in terms of good communication and the importance of that. This was also the biggest area for us to improve, given the roller coaster that we put them through and how poorly we communicated the initial imaging results. It also surfaces in almost all of the literature. Here we are back to the slide. 80% felt like communication was inadequate. In additionally looking, or in addition looking at the, the study, looking at grief and what impacts it, again, whether they felt informed was crucial. We convey information through communication. And I think these also whether how the staff is perceived by the parents is also largely through how we communicate, although certainly our acts of kindness will do a lot to convey that as well. But really, again, most of these are related to communication. So I want to talk about communication in terms of what we say and how we say it. What we say consists of the content, the information that we're (coughs) transmitting, and then also the words that we use to transmit that information. Content that families need um, is honest and complete. They want honest and complete information. This can often be facilitated through giving them an early big picture, such as we did with sort of presenting the family the early, the course of traumatic brain injury that we would expect. But also, again, not losing sight of the big picture. So when we talk about the difference between hypoxic damage versus axonal injury, what does that mean to the family, right? What, what it means to them, what, what they need to know is the impact that that has on prognosis. Additionally, however, they do need some details. So while it's important not to get lost in the details, we need to consent them for procedures, for example. They need to know the details of that. They need to know potentially the details of the treatment options. Why are we placing EEG leads, leads while we're putting him in a coma, for example? why are we even inducing him in a coma to begin with? And finally, they certainly need details of the prognosis to make the decisions for where to go and end-of-life care. Parents specifically also appreciated information on that exact transition also of withdrawing life-sustaining treatments, what that would look like, what the options are for how to do that, and also what the dying process would look like, how that would happen, how quickly that would happen, what their child would look like, do, or feel during that time. Some considerations with this. In general, a lot of what the research showed and what the parents need was pretty consistent. However, the amount of details that they want is certainly an area that can be quite variable, depending on the family, with some family wanting more details, others wanting less. So assessing their need for that is really important. And I had a conversation with the palliative care team that ultimately was involved in this patient's care. And they brought up the interesting point of do they really need all the details? And we specifically, we're referring to us physicians largely getting caught up in the notion that nothing is 100%. In this case, we all basically were thinking in our heads, this poor kid is not gonna recover basically any neurological function. But continue to present the parents with, well, yes, but there is possibly the one, the 2%. We can't guarantee that he's not going to recover anything. And what the palliative care provider had, had suggested is why to consider when the care team should bear some of that respo- that uncertainty and not leave that with the family and present them simply with, he is not going to recover. But when you should do this can be really hard to decide. And we'll come back to that point. How about the words that we choose? The big thing here is to keep it simple, to use layman's terms. Medical terms were often perceived as harsh, not caring and frightening to families. And one study specifically looking at a more international patient population noted the impact that a language barrier had on virtually every aspect of caring for the family and how the family experienced this time. Let's look at how we say things. We'll look at who says it, when we say it and the affect that we use or show while we're communicating that information. Families really appreciated continuity, having the same provider that they get to know with communicate particularly the hard um, and sad news. That really helped to build trust. The number of people was also important with two studies looking specifically amongst other things about uh, at that question and found that usually family preferred having one or two spokespeople, especially in the setting of having numerous subspecialty teams involved and often having various various people in the room at any time during the day. But again, this is an area of some variability, so assessing the family's preference is important. It's important to think about timing. When do we share information? And generally, earlier is better. It's also harder to do, but presenting them with what we know as soon as we have it is very much appreciated. How much information do we present is crucial to think about because families are an incredibly stressed, sleep-deprived state and their ability to absorb information in general is much, much reduced compared to their usual ability. But again is an area where it's quite variable. It can be very varying between families and also within the same family over time. So assessing whether they're able to absorb more information is crucial or giving them time to let it sink in. And finally, we'll need to talk about the same things multiple times because they cannot absorb it. And even though we talked about it the last two days on rounds, they might still have the same question, and being patient with them and repeating information is crucial. Finally, affect. This was an interesting one. Um, Parents want honest and complete information, but crucially need to have this information presented in a gentle, compassionate, caring manner. We looked at the effect of parents feeling like physicians were caring or uncaring and the effect that that had on grief. So the affect that we use with how we communicate information is huge. Using words or presenting information gently, such as I wish we could see your child walk again, but I worry that that is not going to happen can be very helpful. Additionally, parents actually really appreciated sincere expressions of emotion on the part of the providers, which I feel like we often in medical school I thought you should never you should that should be totally separate from patient care. And while it should certainly not be about my emotion, if my emotion helps support the family by making this situation more real and myself more human in my desire to care for this child and care for that outcome of this child, it can actually be really helpful to the family to see. So that is how we can support the family through communication. So coming back to our patient, Two days after all of these meetings, we were now two weeks out from the injury. He still had absolutely no improvement in his neurologic exam. This time we got palliative care involved while we were waiting back for the second opinions from Boston Children's and Florida. In this case, that was actually not too difficult to do because the parents were really verbal about their struggle between making this decision between withdrawing life-sustaining treatments versus waiting. But in other situations, it can be very hard and can be a whole other conversation to have, but I will not focus on that here in terms of how exactly to go about introducing palliative care. But generally, doing so earlier rather than later is helpful. In our case, palliative care was incredibly helpful in several ways. Firstly, they helped assess the family's position in this decision-making process and noted that though they were moving towards G2 placement, trach placement, and going to rehab, they also simultaneously seemed to be preparing to let go of this patient and noted on several times that they felt like he had really been gone since the time of the accident. Additionally, the team was incredibly helpful in uniting our team's message towards the family. And what we did before the next family meeting was bring together all of the medical teams and subspecialists with a sort of team meeting prior to the family meeting to hash out what our message was going to be to them and really concluded that based on all of the information we had with the exam, the imaging, the EEG at this time Boston Children's actually had come back to us that they agreed with the poor prognostic implications of the MRI imaging that we really thought this child had no reasonable chance of neurologic recovery to the point that the parents were hoping or expecting and that we were going to present it to them that way and not, and sort of take away that, well, maybe there's the one or 2%. So that's what we then did later that day with the family. Presented that information to them. They, interestingly, at the same time, had also gotten back information from Florida that agreed with the very poor prognosis for this child and personally themselves felt like. That's the conclusion they had come to, seeing no progress over the last several days in terms of his neurologic exam, and ultimately tearfully accepted to move towards withdrawing life-sustaining treatment at that time and not to pursue rehab. Which brings us to our last point. What can we do for families to help them, to help optimize the context of the death of the child and the time after that? So creating memories can be powerful and is really important. In our case, this family had a memorial service the day before they withdrew life support that was uh, led by our chaplain program uh, that had been very involved throughout this process. They shared memories of their son. A lot of extended family was there in the area, too, and had the opportunity to say goodbye to to the four-year-old. They remembered him. Um, and. had the opportunity to say goodbye. Additionally, returning belongings of the child or doing things such as creating footprints, which we do especially in the the neonatal ICU, but also otherwise can be really helpful to have the family take something physical home to remember the child and their time in the ICU. Taking home the hospital bracelet can also be another way of, of doing that. What can we do around the time of death itself? So should parents be there or not is the first question. Um, It looks like from the the literature in the US, one study found that about 75% of the time the parents were present at the time of death. Whereas in Europe that was a little lower, more between 50 to 60%. Two of the studies that looked at these numbers found that of those that were not present at the time of death, 60% in both of the studies regretted that they were not there and had wished they were there and often had been prevented by the medical team during a time of resuscitation, for example. So I think we definitely need to give the family the option, and I would say probably encourage them even slightly to be there if they don't want to be initially, based on the number of parents that regretted not being there at the time. It's important to provide the family with a sacred place around the time of the death, to give them the privacy to be with their child, give them space, give them time, Let them hold the child, be with the child, whatever they they need to do to be there with them. In our case, uh, this all took place the morning after the memorial service. The patient was extubated. The parents chose not to be there during the actual extubation, but came shortly thereafter. And he then lived for about another two hours. And from the palliative care providers and nurses that were there during that time, those seemed like the longest two hours they had ever been in, and it was an incredibly painful time for the parents, despite all of the times leading up to that decision, particularly because they had very different grieving styles and sort of got frustrated with one another grieving differently at this time. And the palliative care team noted that normally they're almost never present for the death itself, but in this case it felt was felt by them to be absolutely crucial for the parents, to, for them to physically be there as well as a chaplain, so to have one person with each parent, given how painful this was for them. And the chaplaincy team then also met the family and extended family over at David's house, where a lot of them had been staying after the death to provide additional support. After the actual time of death, keeping in touch with the family is very much appreciated. And numerous studies noted that particularly when care was provided effectively, not hearing from the care team after the death felt like losing an additional family member because they felt that close to the care team. In our case, we have a a Chad bereavement follow-up plan or or protocol that, that we follow that includes sending the family a card initially after the time of death, Uh, Usually a social worker, a chaplain, then calling the family about two weeks later to check in with them. There's official letters that, that the Children's Hospital sends out at the one month and one year anniversary of the death. There's cards we send out for holidays, Mother's Day, Father's Day, to support them in their now having to redefine their role of parent after this loss. We send an anniversary candle at one year. And then also have a subscription to a service that's called Hope Through Healing that provides cards at regular intervals over the first years describing the grieving process for these families. And finally offer several different memorial services throughout the year that is open for any parent or us to attend to remember those children that died in our hospital. So this marks the end of our active piece in this story. And this was about a year ago that this happened. And so all of this care in our protocol has been fulfilled, but the family certainly still remains in this story and is not done with it. So to review what we talked about, we talked about the lasting impact that what we do for these families has on them and the impact it has on their grief, our room for improvement. In terms of how we can support the families, we talked about caring for them practically, simple acts of kindness for the parents, the siblings, the patient. Talked a lot about communication, how we say things and what we actually say. And finally, how we can optimize the context of death and what we can do after the time of death to best support the family. Interestingly, one of the more recent review papers summarized all of the parents needs with their desire to reclaim parenthood and we can really summarize each of my three points here in that light with us caring for caring for the family allows them to fulfill their role for the sick child like we talked about effective communication allows them to be informed and involved as decision makers and at the time of death it's really important for them to be there Because that is the final thing that they are going to physically support their child getting through as a parent. And then after death, their grieving process and bereavement process, a big part of that is redefining what their role now is, particularly if this was an only child. I want to go over some of the strengths uh, that we had through this case um, in our hospital. The nurses were excellent, as I mentioned, with particularly the practical care. David's house was a huge blessing to this family and they repeatedly, with all the extended family that was here, referenced it as a home away from home because they had come from out of state. Child life was crucial in supporting particularly the two-year-old brother and how the parents were able to talk with him about all of this. Our palliative care team, as I mentioned, was instrumental in helping the family come to this decision and uniting all of the various team members in supporting them to that decision. Our social work and chaplaincy program were involved throughout the case tied closely also to the palliative care of support that the family needed and went above and beyond meeting the family even at, at David's house to support them. And really what I wanted to highlight with all of this is that this really is an interdisciplinary thing that we need to do. There's no way we can do this all alone and each one of these people brings strengths that is important for for these families. What are some of the questions remaining or future directions on this topic? One is the preferences in other cultures. So the findings were pretty consistent but also largely or pretty much exclusively from a Western population. Do different cultures change what parents need during this time? And there was a hint of this in one of the studies that noted that the Hispanic population had actually very little interest in being particularly actively involved in the decision-making process for their children and really preferred that the physicians be more a part of that. So that certainly needs to be looked at because I think culture certainly has an important impact on what families need and expect. How do we teach this to trainees is really hard, because this is not something, right? I mean, I can give you a presentation, but that does not will not make any of us a master at doing this, and I don't think this is something that you ever reach competence with, but it's something that we all need to continue working on. There's a recent study, actually just from last month, of this year, looking at characterizing the resident's experience of -of end-of-life care with children and their exposure to that throughout residency done at CHOP and found basically that it was actually quite limited and importantly also very variable, how many deaths the the residents had exposure to and certainly an area that we need to look at more and figure out how we can teach it. Boston Children's Hospital has done a fair bit of work on this area and has a program for enhanced relational and communication skills or perks as they abbreviate it as, which is specifically to train for having these difficult conversations, which they do as an interdisciplinary um, simulation type workshop that has been found has been published on is found to be very, very effective in this. So that might be a good strategy to teach this to various levels of trainees and even faculty themselves. What is the effect that this has on us on the providers and our own self-care again that there's hints that it can actually be very helpful to be involved in caring for the families to show emotion for example for our own self-care in having to deal with this. And finally, does this work in a community hospital setting, in a community ED where the child might pass away before they show up at our tertiary care center where we have child life, chaplaincy, social work? Or what if this happens in the middle of the night? How does that change things? So I hope that through all of this I have showed you how we, in some of the darkest times, can at least bring these families some light and support them through what we do. And for years to come, here are many citations. I can't make that thing at the bottom go away. I apologize, and I welcome any questions.
0: Thank you very much, Josiah. Open it up for questions, comments. So I don't
2: know if you had
0: anything in the literature that talked about brain dance versus other forms, because I. And I really find that the times I'm not on the same people the family is around brain death where it
1: doesn't look like death necessarily right. to the family. Yeah, I certainly did not look specifically at that question, but certainly in numerous studies they found that that was a very hard sort of concept to communicate to families because you're absolutely right. Before before our brain death exam and after it, the patient doesn't look any different, and on the vent is breathing, the heart is beating. And having to communicate that, no, this actually is is not compatible with life, right? And if we take away this, that this is legally and medically is the same as the patient passing away, and that being a hard concept. I think this case, that in a sense, though, is even, is almost easier than where this patient and this family ended up, because he was ultimately sort of as close to brain death as you could get without actually being brain dead. Um, but with really very limited function beyond that. But that's certainly a challenging topic for families.
2: Any other questions? Yeah, um, you know, with all of this interest in health literacy, I'm wondering if there's anything in your literature about I'm checking families' uh, understanding of the information that's given to them when you talk about the words. I think that's such a struggle, you know, for conveying the message without using medical treatment.
1: Absolutely. Uh, And I think that relates very much to how, right, sort of the, the rate, for example, at how we present information. Are they really following or are they just sort of dazed and nodding? And I think often starting, so first I think having numerous meetings is really important and then also starting those out with what is your understanding of what's going on, right, rather than me just assuming that they know or don't know what's going on and presenting what I think they need. And I think, again, palliative care Social work chaplaincy was super helpful in facilitating that component of the conversation and also giving them an opportunity to voice their needs. Right. We often have an agenda in these meetings, such as I think we need to talk about withdrawal of life support. But what does the family need? What do they want? So starting it out with what is your understanding and what are some things that you hope for us to talk about here before we get to the things that we feel like are important to talk about today? So I think that's a good point.
2: Um, did any of the studies, by the way, thank you very much. You're welcome. Did any of this, the papers that you look at look at the possible role of the child's pediatrician or family doctor who has an you know, outside relationship and knows the family law. Well, obviously, in this case, it's probably because of I can't. Sure. Involving pediatrician or family doctors, family meetings, and, and counseling both the staff and the, uh, and the family.
1: Yeah, absolutely. They, right, I think that fits very nicely with sort of the the continuity of care and sort of leveraging the relationships that already exist. And the pediatrician, I think, is an excellent example of that. And if you are able to involve them, that can be super helpful for family and supportive to them. And the pediatrician will also obviously have a much better understanding of of the family, of who the child was, and can help the families, right, in the process of figuring out what their, their goals are and also can help our medical team understand where the family is coming from. Pediatrician can talk independently with the family, report back to us, whatever needs to happen to sort of figure out, especially when there's conflict with the medical team, that can be incredibly helpful. I think the, the nurses also fulfill a similar role because they spend way, way more time with the patient than we physicians do. And so having them be a part of the, the team meetings can fulfill a similar a similar purpose of taking advantage of the trusting relationship and the trust that already exists. That's big. Um, great job Thank
2: Thanks you. Uh, Talking on a great topic. I think to circle back to Jeannie's question, you alluded to this, and the residents will laugh because they hear me say this all the time. But the other thing with the choosing of your words is that you have to say your child is going to die. Yeah. And, and passing away, withdrawal of care, people think that, it, and it's, a, it's self-protective completely, but you have to be very deliberate. And that's something you get, you know, it's a, it's a fellowship level often training, mm-hmm. but we try to include it at resident level. Because you may be the general pediatrician who gets called into the emergency room in a community hospital right. where one of your patients has died or is about to die. And and so it's very uncomfortable to have to say those words to a parent and you almost have to practice it in front of the mm-hmm. parent um, because it's hard. But that, and you, start, you, you said it in many different ways
1: absolutely. Just to
2: say, very
1: explicitly. Yeah, and the, yeah exactly. That, that part of
2: that as well. Thanks for that talk. It was great. Um, on some of these comments that have been made, at, I would just caution that, well, let's start it this way. There's one study in the adult literature about prediction of death. <clears throat> and and those patients who the adult caring physicians predicted death some 20 or, I, I, it's been a while so I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was like 25% of the patients were discharged from the ICU and some significant number 7, 8, 9, 10% were discharged home in group. Physicians are not very good And that's particularly true, even in brain death, but especially in patients who are not brain dead. Mm-hmm. And brain them is working. It's possible that you could have withdrawn care from this patient, and the patient had not die. Without that right. assistance. Absolutely. And I'm worried about the concept, especially coming from palliative care, not to give the family this complete last 1% 2% of information. Because can you imagine what would happen if it was not just two hours, Right. it was two days, right. two weeks, two months, patient mm-hmm. did not expire? uh-huh. uh-huh.
1: No, and we specifically had that conversation, I think particularly when we had initially talked about it and the family chose to give the patient more time, that then we were, right, one question was have we, one, right, sort of missed an opportunity for now he might be able to breathe by himself, right, he's triggering his own breath, so we certainly explicitly had that conversation and worried, Exactly about that question, and also to come back to your point about our ability to to prognosticate, I think that's absolutely true. We are not good at it. And when I was speaking with with a palliative care provider, that was exactly my sort of like uh, shiver shiver down my spine. I was like, but we we don't we don't know. And the question of when when can we say that to family, you know, is it one percent? Is it two percent? Is five percent too much? Is absolutely difficult. And I think. <clears throat> navigating that I think palliative care can be really helpful it can depend on the family but that's that's where our hesitancy comes from to tell them your child is not going to recover but I think what was interesting in this case was that we went to the family and said that there's this chance that they will not recover and then would go back into the workroom frustrated with oh they're going for g-tube and trach why are they doing all of this this kids never gonna make it and that sort of discrepancy I think is also not not fair to the family
2: The other, Complete that thought. Another variable here is the sophistication of the family. Mm-hmm. And you can't treat all these families like they're alike. They're going to take the information the same way. So some families, just like all the rest of us and all the rest of our lives, are able to deal with the idea that there's some uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And many are not. And you really have to try, if you have the time, like Case like this, dealing with the patient over days or weeks, to assess that in that family and
0: then decide how to deal with that. Absolutely. I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up because it's week 59. I really want to thank Dr. Schlugel for his presentation. I would like to let you know that this is the part one of two of palliative care at Grand Rounds for my residents. So, Christina, in about a month, is going to be giving part two of palliative care in the Pediatric world. I can't remember what your title was. <laughs> right um, and we do have a resurgence in the area of interest from our residents. We also have a current second year resident who has started a survey looking at how we teach palliative care and these difficult conversations within the context of training. So thank you very much, Josiah.